Rockstar Energy Punch, bringing a bold and unapologetic flavor packed with energy through a blend of B vitamins, guarana extract, and 240 milligrams of caffeine to fuel what's next. Rockstar Energy Drink. And welcome to Across the County. I'm Noah. Thanks for joining me. Well, you know, when we record the show, as we often do for Across the County, sometimes we have technical snafus. So I'm welcoming back Chad Stewart for the second time, my fiance Cami for the second time to the show to talk about what went well so just amazingly last time, <laughs> which is the launch of the third book coming up. Britfield and the Return of the Prince. Yes, I'm talking about Britfield. Chad Stewart in studio with me again. How are you? I'm doing great. Noah, thank you. It's very exciting now that we are uh, on the precipice of this third book being released with all the great reception of the first two. Uh, you guys are breaking records like No Tomorrow. It, you know, it's when Harry Potter has been beaten in literature, you know you're onto something good. Oh, that's that's exciting. No, it's it's amazing. I I feel that we are we're growing stronger every every day, every week. Um, and I'm really excited about book three, Britfield and the Return of the Prince. It's almost at six hundred pages. To me, it's my grand crescendo of the seven book series, but it's my grand crescendo of the first three books. It's the trilogy. And uh, it's just beautiful. It's been beautifully done. Uh, book one, Tom and Sarah, twelve takes place in England. Book two, which we launched last year, takes place in France. Tom and Sarah, thirteen, and now Tom and Sarah are fourteen years old, and it takes place in all over um, Italy. For it. so anyone that loves Italy will love this book. That so, is absolutely yeah. spectacular. And if people want to check it out as we're talking, go to Britfield.com. And Britfield and the Lost Crown is the first book you're going to want to pick up on. Hey, you can even get the first chapter for free if you just want to check it out at the website. Again, Britfield.com. What has been the reception? I know that there's been some initial preview of book three. How has that been received so far? It's been great. And uh, what we do with every, every new book is we... Uh, Right around the third or fourth draft, we will pick um, specific schools because, again, the Britfield series is specifically for – starts with middle school and then moves into young adult. And so book three is definitely the young adult. But half our reading audience are adults across the nation and even um, broad, abroad or globally. And uh, what we'll do is we'll send it out to, um, to readers. To, to people that are familiar with the series that, that are very which, – what's unique about them is that they're very geared in towards this type of, of literature. They're well-read. I mean, everything from, from Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis to obviously all the recent books, the Harry Potter series, yeah. um, Jason the Lightning Thief, um, The Hunger Games. I mean, you name it. And so they, they know what, what uh, good fiction, at least in their mind, is <laughs> and fast-paced fiction. So the uh, – we the, the feedback has been tremendous. Um, and again, too, I don't know. I try to write the best book I, I can. I spent over two years on book three. As I said, it's it's a little over 600 pages. And I spent a tremendous amount of time. And, and again, too, as a writer, you're always trying to, to become a better writer. You're trying to learn from your past um, mistakes or not even mistakes, but just to make it better writing. Did you and, spend the most time on book three out of the the first three novels? Um it's that's interesting because I know book one took me uh, four years and twenty five hundred hours. Book two took me five years and three thousand hours, but different because I was busy and working. So it's not sure. like I was sitting there for five years working on it. I I would almost say that it it might have taken me less time if I were to add up all the hours, and, and a lot of that is from my experience. I yeah. spent I spent a lot more time outlining it. Like and, and not just generally outlining it, scene by scene by scene by scene. So I knew the entire story, all the scenes, where it was going, the character arcs, 
uh, plot point one, plot point two, all of it. The writing almost becomes more comfortable for you as you go along because you're more familiar with characters and perhaps certain settings. And it so it almost kind of, for lack of a better phrase, it almost writes itself. It does. And especially when you work it all out. And then plus, you know, I've become a better writer from book one and two. And so I'm, I'm faster. I know how to set up scenes. I know what to do, what not to do, what, how much time to spend on dialogue or how in-depth in, in the dialogue or not to be in-depth. So uh, it's funny. I think that's the first time I've been asked that question, but it was actually um, faster. Um, and yet I, I feel it's, it's, it's a lot more sophisticated. It's a lot more intense than book one and two, but in a different way. And, um, and it just kind of holds your, it just holds you throughout. I mean, what's interesting is with book three, quite frankly, there is, there is no lull. Now all books have that. There's that kind of like sort of mid, sort of midpoint yep. midway through it, or it's that kind of like, Oh, they finally get there and they're relaxing and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and often it, it can plateau. It kind of stalls and you're like, okay, let's get the story going. For me, I just, I start at the be- beginning and I just build and I build and I build and I build. I mean, it, there, it never stops. Now I'm not saying that there isn't those breaks where they can eat or sleep, but it just it, the intensity grows. The intensity grows. Um, you have all these types of uh, triggers that are set off in the sense of um, uh, reversals of fortune or revelations, and it's not all saved at the end. And so it's like you know a, a third into it, boom, big revelation. You know, two thirds into it, major revelation. And so it's it's tremendous. And it's funny because I I just got done reading um, Ian Fleming's biography, the, mm-hmm. the creator of James Bond, and mm-hmm. I'm actually reading. Um, author Cohan Doyle's um, biography. Oh, that's got to be fascinating. He's amazing. I mean, he's he's he is he is incredible. I mean, he's an incredible person. He's in, he's a t- very intelligent. He's an incredible writer. What I didn't realize realize was that he wasn't just writing the Sherlock Holmes series, but and and he kind of did that as a fluke. But it took off and has become really the most popular character they say in fiction. Wow. Um, and if we're honest, um, they're probably right. But um, he was really a serious writer. He was really after the historical novel, and he, and he, and he kind of, as, you, as many know, he killed off the Sherlock yeah. character early on, and he had a huge backlash from um, from England and from all the readers. Uh, it was it was being um, the series was 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 in I think it was called the Strand. It was like a magazine. Okay. And, and the day that he killed him off, killed him off, like the day it was released and people were reading it, they lost twenty thousand subscriptions. Wow. And and, uh, and he was he was shocked because he was a serious writer. But um, I, I was kind of going off on a tangent, but it's interesting to see in parallel um, his background, his writing style, um, how he actually got into uh, plays. And I didn't realize that he wrote, he wrote um, plays and he did um, adaptations too. And I just today, this morning, finished the final edit of the adaptation of Britfield and the Lost Crown, the two-act play, which we launch in October. So. Well, that, that's fascinating. And I know uh, my fiance, Cammie, and I, we definitely want to go check it out when it launches because we're both huge into plays and theater and obviously big fans of your work. And so I'd like to bring her in and ask how yes. much she's excited about seeing this play coming up here in a couple of months and also give some reaction because she's been reading the first two books. The The Lost Crown has really just taken her students by storm. Love that. And they're having students that are going ahead and they are reading on their own. They're like, when are we going to read, read the next book? I, 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 you know, I can't wait for this. So, Cammie, how has your students really been receptive to Britfield? And what are your overall thoughts on this? Yeah, when I first heard about the books from you, I pulled a copy of that first book and read it over a weekend. And even reading it just in my head was thinking, like, this is such a good read aloud. There's so much rich language and description, and I'm imagining my students imagining things as I read it. So, of course, I introduced it to them. 
And I teach seventh grade. I teach math and science, but at our school, we still do read alouds in every class. And my kids were hooked from the beginning. Mm. The characters are so incredibly relatable, <laughs> just, you know, age and personality, not necessarily circumstance. Sure. Um, but my kids were hooked immediately. So many ideas at that age in middle school, they are very concerned about right and wrong and good guys and bad guys. And um, it gives them things to mull over from the beginning, along with the fast pace and the great characters. They love the banter back and forth between Tom and Sarah and just all the witty comments and zingers that they throw back and forth. And then watching the story develop, um, the way that you write it also gives so many great opportunities to pause at cliffhangers at Mm. the end of chapters (laughs) and things like that. So I would set those up and then my students would beg me to continue reading. They would finish their work early so we could get in extra Britfield minutes. Oh, I love it. And so it's been a huge hit in my classroom. I have a lot of English learners and we do strategies where they draw while I read. And so they're creating artwork based on your stories. Love it. And we made it into the second book, but didn't finish it before summer break. And I had so many disappointed kids asking me, you know, well, how am I going to finish this? I had students go buy the book because they were so excited about it. Um, And as far as the play, you know, in a past life, I was very much in the world of theater and love being able to see good plays. And one of the things that I really thought when I first heard that this was turning into a play from an actor perspective There are so many great characters, even the characters that are not Tom and Sarah throughout the entire story, all have such great backstory and characteristics (laughs) already built in through the book that as an actor, I would love to play any of those roles because they're already just such dynamic characters. So I'm really excited to see this come to the stage and... All of those things that have been in my head from reading it with my students, looking forward to being able to see that on the stage, coming to life with kids portraying these characters and just bringing it into that added reality beyond just what's in my imagination already. Hey, Chad. Yes. Now, Cammie's background is musical theater. Uh, What I would like you to point out, what we've talked about in the past, is why it's important that Britfield, the stage play, is an actor's play and not a musical. Yeah, and I loved hearing your your background in theater, which I think is classic, and that you, once you heard, you realized how many great acting roles there are and it's been fun as I'm going I just finished my last edit and, and it's like even Dr. Beagleswick it's just mm-hmm. a great role for, for you know one of the kid actors to come into there's there's Philip you know at the Windsor Castle who's the, the superintendent and it's like that's a that's an honorary little role it's not throughout but it's but a great but those are the best I, yeah. my favorite role I ever played I was Aunt Sponge in James and the Giant Peach oh. not a huge role but just this great comedic character yeah. that you could just as an actor just devour yeah. and get on the stage and do something over the top based on that character and you have a lot of those characters in your book yeah and it's been fun and I've kind of divided it up too to take so like Philip would not normally have so much dialogue, but I've taken it away from Hainsworth because Hainsworth has too much dialogue in, in a th- theatrical sense. But yeah, it's an actor's play. And I think what's great about it, and, and again, too, coming into it is unfortunately with middle schools and probably most schools is that, is that it's the same sort of batch of 40 or 50 plays that are regurgitated 
every it every is. year. It is right over and over again. It's either Greece or Hair or The Outsiders or Newsies, and it's and it's a ton of musicals, and that really bothers me. Nothing wrong with musicals. I like musicals. Phantom of the Opera is probably my favorite. Um, but again, it's it's not it's not classic theater. And what it does also does is it alienates about ninety five percent of the kids that want to do theater, that want to get into acting. They don't sing, so what are they going to do? They're going to be in the background, or they're going to hum along, or sing as a group, and it's it's terrible, you know, really. And what do you do with all that experience as a singer? Nothing, you know. And again, too, don't not knocking like a music career, but I'm just saying having an acting background, even if you're not going into acting, but going being able to 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 get up on the stage to be a part of a big group like that. We talked a little bit about just that whole creative atmosphere that theater creates. And I think so just as we're, we're bringing back literacy in, into the schools and creativity through Britfield Lost Crown, because again, it's a book that kids can relate to, takes place in present time. There's no fantasy. They can no, go every place that they see yes. in these books. Yeah. And I've got, I know of many parents and many kids that are, that are headed off to England, that are headed off to France, and we'll soon be headed off to Italy um, just because they're so excited to go check it out now. Kids are, kids are excited about, about geography now. Kids are excited about the world beyond California or the United States. But, uh, but no, what's great about this is, that, as you said, there's probably – and I just got done with the final edit. So I'm, I'm a lot more in sync with the play because as you're, as you're first coming into it and doing the adaptation, sure. first it's like, my gosh, where do I start? And then really, what do I cut? You know? And how do I somehow keep this whole story together? It's which a different is, format. Which is 400 pages. It's a 400-page book. It's a lot of description, a yeah. lot of things going on. And get it into a nice tight 90 minute but not necessarily lose anything but keep the story so um i started really just connecting with with like you said a lot of these roles and i was just finishing dr beagle's book this morning and i thought boy that's a really great that's a, that's a, just a great role and then philip i'm like oh that would be a fun character to play and then there's finally the archbishop of canterbury at the end and that's got a small role but classic you know? and why it's going to be different every time it's yeah. shown because i know it's starting in mission viejo and then as schools reach out to try and participate and bring it to their schools yes. It's just amazing because a lot of it relies on the kids can pretty much wear what they have in their closet yes. at home. So you're going to get a different vibe, a different aura, depending on location and school and the student makeup of whatever school they go to. Yeah, the whole play was designed to to be, while while a complex play in some ways, very simplistic and, and easy for schools to put on and host and not expensive. And as I said before... Um, it usually costs anywhere from let's say eight to ten thousand dollars for a school to put on a play. Mm. Not normally, but but uh, number one, there's the licensing fees, and then number two, you got to build all the sets because the sets are complex. And then there's definitely the costumes, and most of these, especially if they're um, future fantasy, I'm thinking of Aladdin Junior or any of the Aladdin stuff. Um, or even newsies, you know what I mean? It's like 1940s, I think, or 30s is when it takes yeah. place. And and uh, and so really, which the, the, the theater director has to do is they have to go out and they have to buy these costumes or make them. And it's expensive. It takes a lot of time, and you're never going to use them again. Not really. And with this is that the fact that the Britfield Lost Crown series takes place in present time. All the kids can dress like as I said this before, like with the orphanage, all we'll do with the orphanage is, is have jeans and like um, dark gray uh, t-shirts, uh-huh. right? Um, and so the the boys will wear short sleeve, the girls will, will will wear long sleeve. So really, the only cost is the t-shirts. Everyone has jeans, and then for the scenes for the background, like at Oxford University, all the kids will be kind of in the background, dressed up in their you know sort of nice school clothes, carrying their backpack or books. The, for the uh, London scenes. 
kids can wear their Sunday best, whether it's a blazer or the girls have a nice dress, they're kind of you know, running off to an office meeting or whatever. So all these costumes are coming, not only, not only are they perfectly fitted, but they're coming from all their, the, the, the students' own wardrobe. So it's not very expensive. It looks great. It fits great. It feels real. It's present time. People can relate to it. Um, and then we do some fun things with sort of the digital backgrounds or scenes which takes a lot of heat of, of off the school of creating these things. But we're going to bring the entire world of England into that theater. That's great. And whether it's a classroom or a major theater or you know an auditorium or wherever it is, it's going to be... If there's be- an administrator listening to us and they would like to bring this to their school, I know it's starting later this year in Mission Viejo, and then I think in 2023 is when you bring it nationwide. What's the best way for them to... Do they reach out to you personally to make an inquiry? What do they do? Yeah, the best thing to do is to contact us on our Britfield.com website. That's a, our award-winning website. It's uh, designed to complement book one. Very got, interactive. Yeah, it's got over 400 pictures of Britain. It's got our school tour, some of the pictures on there, um, our products, a lot of our media, our interviews, all kinds of stuff, further information. So that's the best way to contact us. I mean, I think um, you, you haven't seen anything yet when this thing launches. This is going to be Britfield and the Lost Crown play is going to be a tidal wave across the nation can't wait in creativity it really is it's, it's going to the knock. kids need this it is it's like there's this massive gap out there for creativity and for fun and excitement and things that are real and things that kids can relate to and britfield is just going to hammer it knock it out of the park next year i mean we're going to we're going to roll this out to over 100,000 middle schools and elementary schools so well as you and i have been talking this is why kids often as they're coming out of school are not successful not that they're not smart because it's that creativity that has been lost, and so they're easily replaceable when they don't have that basic set of skills. Yeah, there's a great quote by Picasso that says, all children are born artists, but to remain an artist as we grow up is the challenge. That's right. And I just love that. All kids are born artists. All kids are born creativity. And I think I mentioned that before, but there was a wonderful research project done um, by a gentleman years ago where he uh, used the same creative creativity test that he used for NASA and he used it into the schools and so he started uh, testing kids at age five and and um, 98% were scoring within the top percentile of creativity so mm-hmm. basically 98 out of 100 children at age five were, were little geniuses hugely creative just brilliant he did the same test at age 10 it dropped to 30% did the same test at 15 it dropped to um, 10% wow and so in 10 years kids lost over over 90% of their creativity capacity. Whereas on the other side of that, creativity is the single most important skill set in the world. Well, it's not nourished. That's the main reason. Yeah. Well, and, and this is where I want to bring Cammie in again. Sure, please. As she's reading the Britfield series to her classroom and they're eating it up and they're wanting more, then she does activities. Tell us about how they were drawing certain scenes from the Britfield novels and just how excited they were to do this. Yeah, one of the things, because especially with my students and a lot of them being English learners, uh, visualization is really important. And so um, also going back to your website, that has been such a huge <laughs> tool for me because the students that I work with don't have a very large worldview and they don't have a broad understanding of geography and history. And so even starting the book where we're talking about this orphanage that's an old castle and them not being able to make sense that there could be a castle, but this has happened in modern day. And so pulling up that website and being able to, I will leave it on my projector as I read to them (laughs) sometimes so that they can actually see scenery that is real places in modern times um, to give them more of that knowledge. 
But then as I read, a uh, combination of myself or my students, when we uh, read you know, at the beginning of book one when they are working on the breakout of the orphanage, <laughs> and I am up there with a whiteboard marker in one hand and a book in the other hand, and I'm reading – and drawing my terrible stick figure versions with little initials above them of each character and where they're moving and how this is all going so that they can pull all of that together and really get the visual of what's happening. And then as we continue to read, one of our strategies we use a lot is a listen and sketch. And so I will read places that either have a lot of action or a lot of description, and there's so many to choose from in these books. And as I read, my students will sketch what they are envisioning in the book. And um, I've posted it on my Instagram and shared some of them, but just the really neat creativity. Some of them have drawn comic book style and <laughs> others have taken one specific scene and just drawn all the details and focused on an artwork and seeing them, uh, what their interpretation is from hearing me read the, the stories, what their characters look like, what their scenes look like is really such a neat thing, especially for those kids that are still processing language to see what they're mm. getting out of these books because it is so rich in description and dialogue and things that they are learning in their language. So seeing the artwork that they create based on that is really neat too. I, lo- I love that you pull um, different creative exercises from it. You showed me some of the pictures last time I was here and, and I love it. I love seeing that. And we, We've received um, thousands of, of, of pictures from, mm-hmm. from teachers and from schools and some of that we visited. And it's just amazing not only to see the, the talent or the creativity. And everyone seems to be nailing Big Ben really well, <laughs> right? But, um, but, but all these other creative exercises that come out of it, and I know a lot of schools were doing something where they were creating like these two-foot by three-foot big um, – types of things where they could take one scene and create this big thing. I know, um, I actually, I was at one school and the mom created a Britfield cake. For oh, us. wow. Yeah. It was with a balloon on it. It was like amazing. I'm like, this is so cool. And she was like, I, I found out later she was like a, um, um, a caterer. So it's like, she, she like nailed it. Um, and then, and then a family that had created a Britfield board. Game. I was just going to bring yeah. that up. Yeah. That, I mean, that really takes it to the next level and they even inspired you yes. because now you're thinking about actually creating a trademarked Britfield board game. Yeah. I mean, it's just, we're, we're at the, we're right. We're ready to explode forward. So it's very exciting. And, and I feel like, um, I'm sharing with you, but it's like, you know, we've been at, we've been at this for, for over three years now. Mm-hmm. Now Britfield started as a concept over 10 years ago, it took me four years and 2,500 hours to write. And then 10 years of just building the team, getting everything ready and then launching in 2019. Um, but we're right at that. We're right at that tipping point. July is really our transition month of wrapping a few things up and then we're exploding in August and just, I mean, slamming it forward. So the board, the board game is going to be exciting. We'll probably get into that in probably September or um, October. We're going to again, you know, work with schools across the nation. I've already got, um, probably uh, seven to 10 schools that we'll bring in to this. And we're going to do a contest with these um, teachers and classrooms at these different schools. Well, you're doing the right thing with it too, because as we we were chatting out during our snafu interview that, and I would have never even have guessed this because everything's so digital, but the board game market has actually gone up. Everything is counterintuitive. What you think you know, you don't. But uh, the board game market is growing at a 5% rate per year. Wow. It's a massive market. Um, so it's not going anywhere. It's not decreasing. It's a $3 billion market. Um, and also, like I said, with like the digital ebook, that's flatlined at 8%. The audio is flatlined at probably 6 to, six to 7%. 
Everybody loves the paper. Everybody loves the paper book. The the, the paper market is increasing probably by seven to ten percent right now. I have always loved yeah. just holding the book in my hand. I, I sometimes I'll get into something initially online, and if I really love it. I'll go buy the hard copy. Yeah, and I think a lot of people feel like, oh, it's the end. It's it's the end of the libraries. It's the end of no. the printed book. And it's like, no, that's what they wanted. Because the thing is, is if you can get everything digitalized, then you can change anything. That's right. And if it's in print, it's it lasts forever. But um, but no, so so everything's counterintuitive. Uh, independent bookstores are growing at a five to three, five to seven percent rate every year now. Mm-hmm. They were they were decreasing for years because of you know online and ebook, but they're now coming back stronger than ever. So, and I know it because I, because our our uh, basic nationwide tour visiting over 180 schools and 40,000 students. Guess what I'm doing when I'm signing books? I'm talking to them, I'm asking them, I'm asking the teachers, I'm asking librarians, what do they like? What are they into? And and everybody, every I I I rarely would meet a kid that liked the ebook or wanted to read it on their tablet or, mm-hmm. or online. They all loved the... And it varied. Hardcover versus softcover. Hardcover because it lasts and they like it. Softcover because it's not so heavy and easier to carry. Exactly. But they love the paper. They love the paper. Noah here on Across the County with Chad Stewart, author of Britfield and the Lost Crown, which is obviously the first book in the series. And now, Britfield and the Return of the Prince hitting bookstores in August. Tremendously excited about this. You can pick up already the first two books. Britfield.com also wherever fine books are sold. I feel like now I'm a actual commercial because they, <laughs> they all say that. So the reception has been great. It's really resounded with everybody. And now what I want to ask you about is actually something that I think is pretty important because it shows a cultural shift. And that is Top Gun Maverick. Noah, why are you bringing in uh, <laughs> something completely un- unrelated? No, it's very relatable. Very. Uh, my fiance is shaking her head because that means we're going to go see it about three more times <laughs> in the theater. But it really was a groundbreaking movie, Chad, and I didn't think it would be. No. I, I was excited about it. I'm a Tom Cruise fan. But it checked all the boxes. Yes. It brought a sense of hope back to the American, the American family, yes. uh, people that have seen it that were in the military. Hey, they're like, that is it. That is, yes. what, that is what we stand for here in America. It's an immensely creative piece. What I want to know is the impact that you think, because you loved it as much as I did, yes. it's going to have on the world of Britfield. Yeah, and it's interesting because you uh, were always in sync and uh, communication throughout the weeks we and months, yeah. uh, especially with movies. And we loved uh, the, the last James Bond movie mm-hmm. and loved Daniel Craig as the actor. We're big Bond fans. Uh, and you saw it. I think you I think you saw it opening day or whatever. You were you were on it pretty quick. I was on it pretty quick. It, yeah. it, 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 it's almost my favorite Bond movie of all time, right behind Casino Royale. Yeah, and then uh, <clears throat> Top Gun, and you were you were ahead of the game, and then I, I was on my list, and I finally saw it with my sister. It was kind of fun because we saw it at Point Loma, uh, down at the lot, and uh, it was the same location where some scenes from the original were actually filmed mm-hmm. in the original, and um, and so you know it was interesting because I I've been I've been seeing it. I, I we follow the movie industry as we follow all the different industries. We, you have, we have to. We have a lot of inside contacts. We do a lot of um, statistics and research around the Britfield movie and, and anticipation of how successful it'll be. And so we're, we're following this Top Gun. I did just, you and I, like, I didn't quite see it. I just didn't, you know, I, I, I thought it'd be fun to see. That's what I thought as well. Yeah, but I'm thinking, you know, gosh, it's been like, what, well, 35, 40 years, It's right? like the original Top Gun. Is it one of my favorite movies? No. no. But you know what? It's a fun movie. Yeah. And you enjoy it at the end of the day. But this one is so much more. Yeah. And, and again, too, like the original Top Gun, kind of dated, right? Because yeah. the, the technology's different and stuff, but, but, but the military and all that. 
I just had no idea. And then I, 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 I saw it. I walked out of there with my sister. And my first thought wasn't only just like what a great movie that was and, and how an incredible job Tom Cruise did and Brockheimer and the whole team. I mean, By they, the way, if you yeah. think that we're just making stuff up on why this movie is so great, how does $1.2 billion sound to you? Because that's where Top Gun sits worldwide. Yeah, are you kidding me? I mean, if it did $500 million already, that would be tremendous. Oh, sure. That would be, okay, it did okay. And Tom Cruise, his poll, $1.2 billion? Are you kidding me? And are you, you know why? It's all those reasons that you said. Number one, it's a great family movie. It's relatively clean. It's triumph over tragedy. It's standing up. It's the alpha male, like you said. It doesn't. It doesn't. Oh, it's family values. I have it's missed. Clean. Chad, I will tell you. Yeah. I have missed the shy away from, uh, I mean, they have shied away from masculinity in so many different projects, especially yeah. over the last five years. To see a movie that does not care, that in a healthy way shoves it in your face. Yeah. It, 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 that's why I'm proud to be an American. Amen. And uh, and that was my my connection. I just like because we we we've been anticipating that the Britfield movie will be one of the s- most successful movies in cinematic history. We believe that it will rival the original Star Wars, which was the fourth highest grossing movie in domestic history, and um, and E. T. Another one of those. And again, uh, allotted for the you know um, value of the dollar back then. Uh, but I came out of that. I came out of Maverick, and I thought, dear goodness, this Britfield Lost Crown movie. We are going to. We are going to kill it. We are going to kill it, and it's going to have that. I. I. I the first thing that came to my mind was Titanic, mm-hmm. and that's actually the, the second highest grossing movie of all time. Avatar being the first, but Titanic. Titanic had that sort of, and it's so funny because Titanic. Who cares about you know something a hundred years ago, the, the sinking of a ship? And of course, it wasn't that, but it. It's the event that mm-hmm. that movie did. That's right. You know what I mean? It was just. It was incredible. Kids were coming back to see it three, four, five, ten times. But I just think Britfield will have that type of Titanic impact that kids will, will they'll line up to see it. But they'll come back and they'll, they'll see it. They'll see this movie three, five, ten times. And that's kind of how Star Wars was when Star Wars came out. I mean, when Star Wars came out, I saw it 13 times at the movie theater. I mean, I have never seen a movie more than maybe three times at the movie theater. I've, I did that with the, uh, with the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Right. Yeah, and there's yeah. just certain movies that register with you, and, and so I'm, I think, up, I'm up to six viewings with Maverick. <laughs> I know, and that see that is massively telling, right? Wait for the DVD; you can watch it at home. No. Right? and you're like, no, I want to be in there. I want to be in this, and that's and that, honestly, that's what's so cool about the Britfield movie. It's like I'm taking you to England. We're starting up in the smoldering moors of of Yorkshire, right at this horrible place, Weatherly Orphanage, and then I'm taking you on this balloon ride as Tom and Sarah escape, and I'm taking you to Oxford, the pristine streets, the academic world of academics, and then I'm taking to Windsor Castle and then London and then down to the south. And so I'm taking you all. And so it's a visual movie, right? And it's an exciting movie. It's a fast paced movie. And it's a movie that you want to see in the theater. And, and there's so much in it. It's, it's got so much, like you said before, like rich texture, great characters, a lot of subtext. It's all about family. Characters you care about. Yeah. That's another reason why I love Top Gun. Not just Mitchell. I mean, obviously, it's, sure. Ma- it's Maverick, so, so you love him. You, yeah. you care about even the guy that's a jerk half the time. By the end of the movie, you're like, you know what? That guy's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes in at the so, end. So, Cammy, you've seen the movie with me several times. Not all six times, but we'll make up for that. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> Lucky you. N- n- now, having seen the movie and also have having read Britfield and hearing how the Britfield uh, and the Lost Crown is going to be the first movie coming out, uh, they're going to start working on it next year. What are your thoughts on this? Well, two things. One of them, you know, as we talked about with the descriptive writing, there's actually, um, you know, in book one, 
I think about uh, the car chase scene. And without giving anything else away for people that haven't read it, but reading that and knowing that you were working on plans for a movie, Mm. I was reading that. And even with my students were like, I want to see that in the movie. Like Mm. just the way it's described, you're like, I can see that. I can imagine sitting Mm. and watching some of those scenes just unfold that way. And then the other thing that we haven't really mentioned yet today is one of the things that I'm really excited about is working with middle schoolers both in literature and in movies and other media, so much of what is being thrown at them that is supposed to be, quote, their level is really mature. There is a lot of um, overly sexualized things. There is a lot of um, action and adventure and things like that are great, but so much of it just crosses lines and has a tone that is dark. And and, graphic, yeah. Yeah, and... Those are things as a teacher and also as a mom of a teen and a preteen, you know, you want to protect kids from that. You want to give them the action and the adventure and the romance and things that they're craving to read about and see, but at levels that are appropriate for them. So agree. And I know that with Britfield reading the book there, I would not have to answer to any parents about the kind of material that I am presenting to their kids. And the same thing with the movie, being able to go into it and say, you know, we can watch this. We can enjoy it. It's exciting. Boys who need good boy books and boy movies yes. are going to relate to this and be invested and interested. But we're still not exposing them to things that everybody else is trying to expose them to. It was neat. In, in one of the scenes I really enjoyed in Top Gun Maverick, uh, if you don't want to listen, you should just tune out now because I'm just going to say it. But there's a scene where <laughs> where Maverick is kind of rekindling an old old romance. And when the scene was first playing out on the screen, I was like, well, I didn't expect this movie to go here. They do it very beautifully and very innocently. And I think doing things like that is not only classy, but it's also a way to protect our kids. Yeah. As well. Yeah. And that's, I think, a lot of everything in the book, which will then translate to the movie, is all very age appropriate. It is. For the demographic that's reading this. Um, And it's also engaging for adults. I love it. We actually had a copy of it sitting over at uh, Noah's parents' house, too. And his mom, without us realizing, she picked it up. And a couple of days later, she's like, you know that book you left there? Yeah, I took it because I actually really like it. And I said, oh, I love it, too. And she said, do we have the second book? I said, I'll give you the second book oh, when you're it. done. So it's engaging enough to, as a parent, you know, there's nothing worse than sitting through movies with your kid that are um, not engaging as a parent. And you're sure. just taking your kids to make your kids happy. But this one really appeals to adults as well so well, and that's why i think chad is very excited to, to make this into a movie because it's really going to and not just that but even as a book harry potter a lot of people including myself i think it's a fabulous story but there's there, there's just a line that there's certain members of your family you don't want them to read it or to see it sure Britfield's not going to be that no no and, and our, our main theme is all about family so whereas harry potter the, the main theme is black magic and witchcraft and occultism you could argue it any other way, but that's the fact. And and uh, but I love what you said because that's true. And it's and to me, it's um, I'm very very careful as an author and a writer that at 12 years old, it's very different. At 13, different. 
at 14 different, but you don't need to go there. And I think, I think honestly, great writing is not going there. It's like, I could have a, I could have a chase scene, but I don't, I don't need the graphics. Um, or I can have an explosion, but it doesn't, again, need to be graphic. And it's, it's setting this sort of tension and suspense that pulls you into the story and makes it great without having to, as you said, cross the line or go there or put that stuff in there, which frankly, 90% of the time just isn't needed to begin with. You know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's almost like with movies too, and that's a whole other ball game. But adding those f words in there, the f bombs, and I, I I hate movies like that. To me, it's the cheapest way to do it. They're trying to be all cool and edgy and artsy, and I'm like, no, it's crap. You know what I mean? And it's like to me, like it could be two New York cops that are arguing because one of them like cheated him out of something, and it's like the typical moronic liberal uh, writer will sit there and, and drop the f bombs because he thinks that's cool. And it's like to me, the most intense scene would be just a look holding the camera there for five seconds. It's like often it's what's not said, and that's powerful. And so um, that's kind of what, what we're all about. It's setting that tension without having to add all that stuff in well, there. Well, we were talking last time and bringing it up again because people can't hear the first chat, obviously, but when you compare Britfield, and especially when we're talking movies, to anything that's been done in the last 50 years, I mean, there's really only a handful of movies that you could compare it to I mean, I mentioned last time Indiana Jones, I think, is a great yeah, comparison. That was a great one. I was thinking about National Treasure. That's a good one, too. That's another yeah. good one. Uh, you compare it to the original Star Wars. And then there's obviously Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia. But then again, you kind of get away from those from real world. That's high fantasy, yeah. Which, as much as I love the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, what I'm excited about for Britfield is. You can't go to those places. In Britfield, you can. You're going to be able to go to England, to France, to Italy, and experience that. And they can even get some of that on the website. Agreed. And, uh, and it is. It's, it's funny because, again, with the research that we're doing, we've tried to put together like the top 25 most successful family-focused movies of all time. And I'm, I would ask anybody out there, could you name five family-friendly movies in the last 10 years? Right. Outside of the ones I just, just mentioned, yeah. as far as like high adventure, there's not a lot. No, no. And it's really hard. And I, I, I'm always coming back to sort of like Disney and the, the escape from Witch Mountain. You know what I mean? But, um, but I think you're right. Like um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that was just a great, a great, I mean, I loved one and, and three. And three was great with Sean Connery coming back. But those, those were fun. They were great action, but they were clean. And those were family movies and, I, and very, very successful. And then again, too, National Treasure. That's a great, another great, you nailed it um, and they're actually in the works of doing uh, three with Nicholas. Oh, Cage. are they finally going to pick that yeah. back up? Oh, now that's I'm really ex- that's what oh, I heard. Excitement, but um, but anyway. So again, love and I own those. I own I own uh, you know like you have. We all have our own DVD collections I or do. whatever you have, and I'm mm-hmm. and I've got my like my 150 or something, but. Uh, everything from Star Wars and the Sound of Music to The Great Escape to The Born Identity. But um, I've, got, I've got the Raiders because they're great. They're great to pull out every year. I've got National Treasure. Those are great. And those are great examples. So there's not that many. You can't just, you know, what about like action, like superhero movies? I could name 50. You know what I mean? Because they've been pounding them out like well, well, five you and, a year. But, well, you and I are very similar. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of lazy writing in superhero movies. Yeah. I do love the genre because I grew up reading comic books. Sure. So my comic book movie collection is actually very small. Mm. So I'm a huge Iron Man fan. So oh, I right. own all three original Iron Man movies. Sure. I think they're beautifully written. Sure. But not every comic book movie is like that. 
Yeah. Yeah, and again, coming back to the Britfield thing, is like you cannot relate to the superheroes, even Iron Man. We're not all billionaires and can and have a suit, right? I mean, they're fun, and I get that, and they're fun to watch. I grew up, but I mean, I remember when the first uh, Superman movie came out, if you remember that, Christopher Reeve, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. That's cool. Like, who doesn't love that? Um, or Batman, you know, the first one with Michael Keaton. Wow, that was great. Um, but again, it's just it's what's great about Britfield is it's real characters, real places, things you can relate to, real incidences that you don't solve with superpowers, demigods, witchcraft, or, or what what have you. So, why do you think, Cammy? If you could name one thing, as we are wrapping up a tremendous interview with Chad Stewart, author of Britfield and the Lost Crown, Britfield and the Rise of the Lion, and now Britfield and the Return of the Prince coming out in August. Look for it. Go to Britfield.com. As you've been reading to your students. Is there anything in particular that is really jumped out at them about why you think they're gravitating towards such an amazing story? Gosh, one thing. I think it's it's just this perfect combination of um, characters who are relatable. They genuinely like Tom and Sarah. They love the relationship back and forth. My kids are dying to know if Tom and Sarah are ever going to be boyfriend and girlfriend uh, because uh, there's that banter back and forth. Love it. Um, Isn't that cool? That's and so then, cute. Yeah. And then the, the fact that what they are going through uh, is not necessarily everyday life. You're not, you know, stealing hot air balloons and things like that. But it is all within the realm of possibility. Yes. And yeah. then within that, they get these great needs met of the idea of justice and right and wrong. And we've had so many great conversations around that. So they're taking all of these things that are definitely out of the reality of my students' lives. Sure, sure. Those things are not relatable to them um, in that sense, but because the characters are relatable and the world that these characters are living in is yes. a real world and the events are relatable, they definitely gravitate toward that. And, you know, a lot of my students also are the underdogs in life. Mm. And so relating to Tom and Sarah, even though my students are not orphans, they're yes. underdogs in life. Yeah. Rooting for, you know, hoping that Tom really does find his family and that Tom hit is who they think he may be. Yes. And all of those things, seeing the good people that come along and help them, seeing the not so good people that are trying to sabotage them. Those are all things that my students can relate to on a personal level, even though they don't have those exact life experiences. Sure. So I think that all combined makes for a really connecting experience for them where they really are invested in these characters and are really rooting for their success. I will say, I'll say this real quick, too, because uh, in, in book three, there's a slight sliver with Tom and Sarah where, where we, we – I won't give anything away, but there's just a slight sliver. And again, too, going back to what you were saying earlier, you don't have to go there to go there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just the mm-hmm. hint of it and uh, where, if you will, Sarah is starting to get some attraction towards Tom and seeing him a little bit different than his, her best friend and Tom's oblivious. Interesting. Yeah, Tom's oblivious as every 14-year-old <laughs> would be, right? But, but, it's, it's, it, but it's done so delicately and so subtly, but it's there, and everyone will pick up on it, um, which is great. But I was also going to say, too, as, I'm, as I've been writing book, book one, the play, doing the transition and even just this final edit, it's like seven days straight – um, it's it's interesting because it's it's like it, it's believable though like you know what I mean like it could happen it's like at first it's like okay Detective Garrison's like oh my gosh this guy's a fanatic you know like like a detective's really gonna be that like absorbed with finding these two lost kids and getting all and then all of a sudden you when you find out why it does make sense 
You know what I mean? Why he was so fanatic, why he was willing to risk his job, why so many cops were looking for him. Uh, and again, I don't want to give anything away for some of that, but it, but it makes sense. It, it's believable, if that makes sense. And it's like, as a writer, you can always suspend reality, but be careful. Believability is yeah. something that has been lost when you're talking about movies or books that people are getting into. I think they've almost become desensitized, and they're okay with being taken out of reality. But in yeah. the end, that doesn't do them any favors. I'll give you a quick example, too. But but I remember, like, um, uh, uh, Dan Brown, you know, and, and like, The Da Vinci Code. But, but the book that he wrote, his third book was uh, Angels and Demons. And there's a scene where he's in a helicopter flying away at the end from, I don't know if you guys read it, the Vatican, because they had this bomb that mm-hmm. went off. And the, the helicopter's going, oh, no, 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 it's in the helicopter. And so he jumps out. He takes his coat and uses it as a parachute. And jumps out of the helicopter. And I'll, I'll never forget that because it just bothered me. I'm like, you got us this far with all these details and you do something so stupid. The one scene, right? yeah. in any, <laughs> and, and I love all of the Indiana Jones movies. The yeah. one scene in all of Indiana Jones that I cannot stand still is in the second Indiana Jones movie in the Temple of Doom. When to escape the plane that is going down, they get into a raft, they inflate the raft, and they dive out of the plane uh, yeah. from Lord knows how high up. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. You, you, just, sur- you survived. You just lost them, right? I mean, and, and so I'm very careful. Like I said before, I'm always playing the devil's advocate, and, I'm, and it's always, is it possible? And I do my research deeply um, with facts and details and, 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 and you know, distances and times and seasons and you name it to make, to make it believable. But 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 you get, you got to be very careful as a writer. You that, do that. that it's a, it's a slight line to walk. You can get away with it, like with the balloon book one. I did. Ta- I mean, it, I, I did suspend reality just a little bit there. But it's all it's all practical. It's all real. The distances, the type of balloons, the wind currents, even the balloon fair actually takes place in that time of year, at that particular place when they enter that balloon fair as they're headed towards. It Oxford. gets people to think, hey, yeah. is it a possibility? Yes, but it doesn't suspend reality. Yeah, yeah, you got to be careful. So. Chad, um, book four, when are you picking that up to start writing? Do you already have a title for that? And what's the production, the pre-production status for the movie, for the first movie? Yeah. Wow. A lot of questions. Um, so I'm hoping to start book four, outlining book four, but but casually, because it's like my work has been done now for a while, right? But uh-huh. uh, in November of this year, and it's called uh, Britfield and the Eastern Empire. And we'll, uh, we'll start in Vienna, Austria. And then uh, move through Eastern Europe, some of my favorite places, Prague, uh, Bratislava, Prague, uh, parts of Poland, and then, um, and then finally end up in Russia, uh, probably St. Petersburg, and then end in Moscow, kind of giving some of it away. But very cool. And, it's, and it's, what's different about this, too, is it's not just one country, but it's multiple countries. And it's uh, kind of going up. We're, we're getting away from Europe now, which is kind of fun. And, uh, but I, w- I do want to try to keep it right around four, 450. I, I, I don't try to write more. Like book one was 384 pages, perfect fit. Sometimes it naturally happens, it I happens. imagine. This, yeah. you, you were mentioning that before when like the story takes off. And it's like, it's like as a, the perfect place to be as, as a writer is when you're, when you're not forcing your story, you just long for the ride. And that happened, that happened in book, book two because I was aiming for 400 pages and, I, and it was 474. And again, it, it, ended, it happened in book three. I was, I was saying like, you know, I don't, let's just shoot for five, 450, 500, and we're coming in at 600. And it sounds crazy, but it's just like, you know, like I have a small scene like with a couple of characters in, in, the, in the Colosseum in Rome and also that scene turned into something amazing, right? It's actually one of my favorite scenes. And so instead of one page, it became five pages and it just happens, but it's all natural. And what's so great about my stories, if you will, is that, um, they're tight. There's not a lot of that fat that you need to cut. And as I said before, what I do in my last edit is I'm coming through every single page. I try to get rid of at least one sentence per page. 
What doesn't need to be there? What dialogue? So you're can be already cut. slightly trimming as you go. Yeah, yeah. Meaning it's already tight. I've edited it. I mean, everything that needs to be there is there, and and that is my goal. What can I? And, and every edit, I'll lose another ten pages. Now, is that something? As you answer the second question, that you want to do, do when everything is all thrusters set to go for the first movie, Britfield and the Lost Crown? Is that something you want translated onto the big screen? Uh, what I will say, no, it's going to be interesting because I've just come through the play. And the play is, of course, specifically for middle school and elementary. It's, it's, it's 90 minutes. When I say 90 minutes, it's probably, um, it's probably an hour and 15 minutes plus a 15-minute break, you know, all in. And, um, and uh, for, for a movie, Britfield and Lost Crown, it's always going to be a two-hour movie. Uh, it could be 210, 215, and we could get away with that. And people wouldn't know. You know, they're, they're, sometimes you'd be watching a movie and you get that natural feeling or subconsciously you're like, okay, is it getting there? Because it's like I've been sitting for two hours. But it's, um, it, it'll be interesting. It'll be, I, I've been thinking a lot about it lately because it's like, um, what do we keep and what do we not keep? Because you still have that problem. And I know that every adaptation in a movie has that. I know with Harry Potter, I've been thinking about that because I, I read the series because I had to. I had to as an author, number one, see, oh my gosh, why? What's the phenomenon all about? What's so great about these stories? Et cetera, well, because et if you yeah. will, you wanted to do what Harry Potter did on a much much bigger scale. So it, broader scale, but, yeah. but but not cheating, right? And I'm exactly. sa- I'm saying that in the sense of fic- fiction often can be cheating. It's like you you create a magical world, and it's like you can you can create whatever you want to. Keeping everything anchored in reality, and I write myself into boxes many times. And one one scene is when they I'm giving some away, but the crash land in, at Oxford, right? And the balloon's surrounded by cops. It doesn't have um, um, uh, uh, I was going to say helium, but it uh, doesn't have um, uh, propane for the for the tanks. And and I wrote myself into a, into a, in a box. And if you remember the scene, Tom and Sarah at Allers Flat, and they're, they're they're going over it and saying, "Okay, we don't have any money, you know, this and that." And I literally, I literally, after I finished that, I said, "How are they going to get out of here?" Because it's like again, they can't wave a wand, or they can't remember some spell. And it's like, remember if we said that Latin spell, we could, you know what I mean? Like, I can't cheat like that. I can't make that stuff up. And so I... In the I, world of Harry Potter, there's yeah. always a very easy out. Yes, you're right. Always. And, uh, and there's another layer. And it's like, well, there is this book, and there's this one spell out there. Or there is one old wizard that if you find him, and blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, it's again, it's that elevated fantasy. But um, no, I think uh, the movie will be incredible. I think it'll be about... Uh, well, it definitely be two hours. It could be two fifteen. We'll actually uh, we'll start the screenplay probably this fall, uh, which I'm very excited about. I and, you're, and you already have the producers lined up. I, I do. I, I think you already have the director. If you told me right, too. Potentially, we have the director, someone everyone would know, um, and uh, we've got a major major studio. Uh, some things I can say, some things I cannot say. I'm very excited though. I met with my um, producers uh, uh, last week. For about four hours, uh, which was cool, and um, uh, they live up in Los Angeles, but uh, they they have some homes down here on the water, and so we were down there, beautiful house on the water, just stunning, and um, we're talking, kind of digging deep, getting into the next phase, talking about um, um, another gentleman that uh, worked for um, a major studio that um, was very successful, and then has been over at the largest studio, but has just stepped down, and so we thought, my goodness, the guys from Britain try not to give anything away here but um there's an amazing connection there too and i think what's neat about the britfield movie in my opinion and i've felt this for years is that it's a type of project that's going to attract a lot of talent and i don't mean just the obvious you know budget and things like that and what's great about it too is you don't have a lot of a-list actors per se you have uh professor um um hainsworth 
But again, too, that's kind of an older role, mm-hmm. sort of 70s and mm-hmm. stuff. So you have sort of a veteran British theater actor, you know, obviously movies. You have Detective Gowerstone, which kind of is my sort of Colin Firth. Um, although he's getting kind of old now, but I, I like him. <laughs> but it's like, I'm like, oh, gosh, he is getting old. Um, but that, beyond that, it's like you have a lot of fresh roles, especially for the kids and the orphans and Tom and Sarah. But I think it's a type of movie that will attract a lot of A-list actors for just bit parts because they, it's like Star Wars. They want to be a part of it. Um, and again, I'm thinking like the small scene where Tom's taking the cab, you know, to get over to Waterloo. And I'm like, that, I've already got that earmarked for, for Denzel Washington. Doing a doing a killer British accent, he he has a cap on and he turns around, right? And you're like, oh my gosh! I am telling you, if Denzel makes your movie, oh my goodness, it's going to oh, be one something way or the special. Other. One, one way or the other, he's 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 on my radar, and uh, and I don't mean to, to to put him in such a small role. And if we can get a bigger role, that'd be great. But I'm just saying, it's that type of movie where it's like just for them to, to fly out to, to London or oh, yeah. England oh, for, yeah. for three days to be in a bit part to be in it because it's like the kids are like dad you have to or mom you have to be in this movie or just for the kids to make a trip out of it and get out there and like see behind the scenes of the Britfield movie I just think it's I think we're going to have an amazing pool of talent um, from Hollywood and, and, and abroad and, and and I say that too where there's there's so much talent beyond um, Hollywood and uh, and I, and so we'll have a lot of those we'll have some great British character actors that you probably have never heard of their names um, but have seen them if you will um, whether it's British television programs or BBC or something like that. So, um, and that's what we're looking for. So we don't need the A-list actors uh, per se, but I just think um, it'll attract a lot of them because they just want to be in it, right? Well, and yeah. mainly not just because it's, it's a great book and it's a great movie, but as we've had this this amazing chat, as always, Chad, Britfield at the end of the day, as you and I always say, it's a movement. Yes, it really is about bringing creativity back to the schools, to the world, so that kids have something to aspire to, to look up to, so that they can be successful at the end of the day and be the next generation. I love that. I love that. When we said that, we were saying that years ago, that Britfield's more than a book. It's a movement. It's a movement in literacy, creativity, education, getting kids excited about education, about reading, about writing, about storytelling. And it's not just about writing. And I, as I said, I, I went on this national school tour, you know, multiple, and we're still doing it. I've got it. We got our first Australian school in August. Isn't that cool? Or was it July? I think it's coming up because they, they're on a different calendar. Uh-huh. And I'm very excited. It's a virtual, it's a virtual author visit. And then we got three or four lined up in England um, in the fall. So it's very cool. But, um, but, it's it's getting kids un- to understand the importance of just of of, um, of good storytelling because storytelling is a part of our life and in fact um, I'm getting my my doctorate degree up at the Druckerts School up in Claremont and I did a major research project with a lot of the alums successful alums I'm going off the tangent here but um, and, and 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 I and I interviewed over thirty of them and these are people that are all like in major fields of, mm-hmm. of banking nonprofit you name it. And um, we were trying to find out what are the most important skills that they need. This is kind of behind the scenes, pulling the curtain in, in, in the nonsense flashover substance. Number one was creativity. And, I, and, I, and I, I wasn't skewed that way. I wasn't trying to find it. Number two was storytelling. Wow. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. And because the thing is to think about it. I think it's a lost art. It is, but everything about you is storytelling. And, and I'm not talking about writing the novel, but I'm talking even your appearance. When you walk into a room, when you're going for an interview, your resume is a story. And how well that resume is told is the difference between getting the job and not. When you're interviewed, you know, and it's like you're, you're not stumbling on questions, but you're very articulate. You've, you've, you've composed your background in such a way that you're telling them a story. And that story is either going to intrigue them or bore them. To, to being in a consultant and pitching a project. What are you doing? Storytelling. Marketing. 
That's storytelling. Advertising, that's storytelling. Great storytelling is the difference between success and failure. Well, kids are definitely getting it, and I'm really excited that this new book's coming out in August. It is Britfield and the Return of the Prince, and so you're going to be beginning working on book four in November. The play is going to be launching this fall, and then the movie is going to go full force into production next year. So much to look forward to, Chad, and I hope maybe this fall we can have you back and get an update on everything that's going on. Uh, It's been a tremendous success, and uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, Thank you, and we're, we're, um, we're, we're hoping for an Eastern European tour this fall. Oh, good. I actually started to think, I'm started returning to the thoughts of it today because so, some things are starting to align, but we're also, also kind of waiting for it to clear up over there a little bit. Right. Because my, my, my beachhead in Eastern Europe was going to be Poland for like three weeks, and so we're, we'll see what's going to happen. But um, I would, I'm, I'm hoping to do that this fall, September and October. So. And Cammie, thank you for your additional perspective when it comes to your kids and also the educational sector, because I think that's uh, very relevant information, and I'm glad it's been such a hit in your uh, classroom. Thanks for having me. It was fun to talk. It was great having you. Thank you. Noah here and across the county. Go to Britfield.com and get ready for Britfield and the Return of the Prince. Lots of channels. Nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel. Straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on local now, channel 525.